You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Dear listeners, Assalamu alaikum. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. And welcome um, to another live session here from the Voice of Islam Studios to the Drive Time Show. You're joined by myself, Salman, and Daniel, God willing over the next two hours um, in which we will be discussing two very important topics once again um, the first one being the inflation um, overall and especially in regards to the UK <coughs> sorry um, so what is the situation at the moment and what does Islam say in this regard and in our second hour we will be discussing the life and character of uh, the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So, really, to get um, into the topic right away, um, the country which is already mourning the loss of the Queen, as we all know, um, can also be faced with strikes from workers demanding as inflation reaches a record high, and we already already know that the energy prices are soaring, along falling real wages and dropped productivity growth has dropped which has impacted the life of everyone living in the UK um, I mean mostly at worst um, so today we um, ask our audience to join us as we discuss the current economic situation you can obviously um, call us um, to let us know about your feedback in this regard what, what is your opinion let us know call us on 0208 687 7878 you can also tweet us at voice of islam uk and also um find us on instagram let us know what you think about this topic so daniel to really i mean this is more your field than, than it's mine <laughs> to, be, to be very honest what is the current situation peace and blessings of, uh, of Allah be upon uh, you and all the listeners yes I think uh, the situation out there is um, doesn't present a pretty picture unfortunately uh, inflation is um, uh, is at its highest that it's been in decades uh, people are suffering um, uh, food inflation is very high also um, the energy prices are going up and that's leading to further inflation, fueling um, um, inflation even more. So, um, yeah, we, we're caught in a bit of a vicious um, cycle here. The government is trying to do its bit, and uh, there has been an announcement, uh, although we await more details from the government on what it plans to do around um, energy prices and, and capping household energy bills. However, uh, food inflation is still at its highest, um, and that is causing um, a great deal of uh, discontentment among a large section of the population here. So, um, you know, poverty is not something that uh, um, uh, people in the in the West um, uh, would uh, would consider something of a massive problem in in the West. But unfortunately, it is becoming a problem. I mean, we've been hearing slogan, for example, uh, we've been hearing about uh, eating versus eating or heating your homes. Uh, that's a phrase mm-hmm. that's been mm-hmm. used a lot over the past few months. So, um, uh, and that's, uh, you, you know, we've never heard these, um, we've not heard these phrases since the end of the Second World War. So um, this is obviously very new for 
for, for most people, for, uh, for, for anybody who's born after the Second World War, especially all the baby boomers out there. So yeah, it's a, a overall. Uh, just to answer your question, it's a, it's a bleak picture at the moment, and uh, things are not looking up. Uh, uh, n- not to mention that uh, there is also forecast that uh, the economy is supposed to go into uh, a recession. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, just to give our audience a, a few a few stats that we have found of some uh, information. So, for instance, the, the the Wall Street Journal reports that the country is on track to record the lowest economic growth and the highest inflation in the group of seven rich countries next year. Um, the British pound has reached its uh, lowest level against the US dollar since mm-hmm. 1985. Correct. Um, the sterling fell to 1.14 uh, in afternoon trade in London, um, a level not seen in 37 years. Correct. Um, the Economic uh, Policy Forum predicts the UK economy uh, will wreck called zero growth in 2023 and that inflation will run at 7.4 percent the u.s meanwhile is forecast to grow 1.2 percent and have far lower inflation at 3.5 percent and the in the uk uh the inflation hit a 40 year high as you mentioned of course of 10.1 percent year on year last month and predicted to go past 18 percent in January, according to the fortune, I mean, the the decision makers there, what is going through their minds, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a very tricky situation, absolutely. Um, and uh, there are no easy solutions. I mean, all of these numbers. I mean, some some you mentioned, uh, you know, British pound lowest since nineteen eighty five, mm-hmm. inflation at a forty year high. Um, uh, we haven't even um, uh, touched the uh, the energy prices here, mm. so uh, you know these are all staggering numbers. Uh, people over here in in the UK in the West are not used to these numbers. I mean, you know, think about forty years. I mean, a, a whole generation has uh, has been born and has come of age in these in the last forty years. So this is all new for for many people, and. Uh, this is all exacerbated by the fact that uh, the economy is supposed to go into a recession. So, um, unfortunately, again, no easy solutions out there. Um, I think the government is trying to do its bit in terms of um, capping the energy bills. Mm-hmm. That will help. That will certainly help with um, controlling inflation. But I, you know, one major concern that I will have is um, is food inflation. Mm. And uh, that uh, is um, uh, is unfortunately um, still at record levels, still at very, very high levels, if not at record levels. And, and that's affecting a, a huge segment of the population. Now, you see, you, you, you mentioned something, um, eating versus eating, right? Mm. Now, we here in the UK are, are blessed enough to not be having those problems at large at the moment. Yeah. Do you think this is a situation we, I, I mean, are, are we going to get worse over time? Or um, is, is there something we really should be worrying about? Or is it just a, a hype being created? I think it, from the looks of it, uh, it's going to get worse before it gets better. You see, the the background to this is the, is the current crisis in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And 
unfortunately at the moment we we don't see an end to that yeah and unless there is uh there is some sort of a conclusion to that conflict energy prices are going to remain uh very very high so um none of this is obviously helped by a very us against them um uh, situation that we have uh be- between Russia China and the west on the other side um a, a, that that's another discussion for another day there is a, there's a huge amount of uh, geopolitics going on there but um a, a, to answer your question all of this stems from or most of this stems from the war in in Ukraine and unless there is some sort of a settlement there um i don't think we will see um um a things um things uh, slowing down or things improving in terms of inflation mhm mhm we do have our first guest now um online with us yes. um so let's uh, go directly to professor john fender who is professor emeritus of macroeconomics at the university of birmingham assalamu alaikum peace be with you very warm welcome to the drive time show okay well thank you very much indeed and um likewise to you thank you thank you professor so uh, uh your thoughts firstly on, on on the current inflation scenario we see in the country where do you see this headed um well um i see inflation heading upwards if anything uh, mm-hmm. over the next few months um it's nothing uh, to to look forward to at all it's going to be fairly grim but um i expect over the next couple of years then inflation will will fall back considerably uh, so in 2 years or so um there's a good chance we'll be back to m- much more modest um inflation levels but uh, in in the short run in the next few months over the next year it's going to be pretty painful i'm afraid so uh, a difficult 2023 ah uh, yes indeed yes right so what advice would you give professor to uh, to somebody who's l- listening to the show who's who's already on benefits living very close to the poverty line in this country so um so I, i i'm not sure what what exactly your question is i mean it it is going to be fairly fairly grim for somebody on on the mm. poverty yes yes i agree um yeah um I mean but um I mean the government has taken some measures to uh, alleviate the impact um but um yes um what more do you think professor the government can do here excuse me what more do you think the government can do here um well it could probably expand its intervention measures and mm-hmm. we'll see on friday uh what exactly it's um going to do i mean it's already done quite a lot with freezing gas prices freezing domestic gas prices i should say and the 400 rebate on everybody's energy bill and uh, a number of other measures but you know there's probably more the government could do it perhaps could give a higher energy rebate um perhaps increase um benefits um um temporarily and and so forth but um it is it is going to be fairly grim and hard going for many many people i'm afraid what do you what's your thought on um on we at least uh, 
in the section of the press that uh, thinks that the current economic challenges are more uh, driven by the high debt levels that we've accumulated rather than the Ukrainian crisis? Oh, I think the recent inflation is perhaps mainly um, due to the Ukraine crisis and mm-hmm. specifically the increase in wholesale gas prices, which have been, uh, which have been massive. Um, as far as the pandemic is concerned, I think the main way in which that has affected inflation is through disrupting supply chains. And supply chains have been uh, disrupted a lot. This has produced an increase in inflation. I mean, there are a number of other uh, reasons for inflation as well, at least in the um, United Kingdom. I mean, I think two things I'd mention are the depreciation of the pound. Um, our pound is um, worth less in terms of other currencies. Mm-hmm. So um, this has pushed up the price of imports. And also the labor market is fairly tight. This is something which has surprised quite a number of people. But um, Yes, unemployment is low, and this seems to be reflected in some increases in wages, although, you know, wages are increasing about 5%, perhaps a little bit more than that. Um, Nothing like uh, the current rate of inflation, but it is still a contributive factor to to inflation. So um, I'd emphasize uh, the Ukraine crisis and the Uh, impact on um, wholesale gas prices, but there are a number of other factors as well uh, which explain the current rate of inflation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Certainly. Uh, Professor, our new Prime Minister promised um, tax cuts, as we all have heard. What, um, in your opinion, will be the implications of those tax cuts in the long run? Right, that's that's a very good question. I think um, I would have a number of questions for the uh, Prime Minister or her economic advisers. Um, Is she going to increase other taxes to ensure that borrowing doesn't rise? If there's no um, increase in taxes and um, government spending isn't cut back severely, then I'd expect borrowing, government borrowing, to rise considerably. And uh, I don't think that would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. So I'd really like to know what accompanying economic policies they're going to be. Are there going to be tax increases elsewhere to recoup the lost revenue? Are there going to be reductions in government spending? In which case, I'd like to know what um, parts of the government uh, can be cut back, because uh, um, I think we see the opposite. They're going to be huge demands for extra spending in many areas, you know, health, justice, um, social support, and and so forth and so on. So I'd have uh, these questions for the (laughs) Prime Minister. Um, I'm not sure that um, the tax cuts that have been suggested, which are reductions in um, national insurance contributions and incorporation tax, will do very much to increase the underlying rate of economic growth. And I think there are probably other things that can be done. There are a number of features of the tax um, system, for example, which are quite harmful and quite um, inefficient, and which I think uh, could be sorted out, but uh, I, I doubt whether that's going to going, going to happen. But you know, these um, 
the, the measures which the Prime Minister has suggested, I don't think they're going to do very much to increase long-run growth. Professor, what's your view on um, uh, taxing energy companies or oil companies uh, who obviously have, um, um, have registered record profits? Okay, well, that's another good question. Um, right, I'm, I'm a bit torn on, on this. I can see the advantages and disadvantages. Um, I mean, yeah, you might say, well, um, the, the oil companies, the companies that actually um, produce the oil, <laughs> that, uh, you know, pump it out of the ground, they're presumably making a lot more money um, because of um, the increase in oil prices. But um, the actual energy suppliers, you know, the people we get our gas and electricity from, they're not making massive higher prices because they're having to buy the, um, the, the, the gas or the electricity and they're paying higher prices for those. Um, you know, I can see there perhaps is some case for taxing these uh, high profits um, if uh, we can, but you know the, uh, there are also some quite strong arguments against. Um, so, you know, if you were to specifically talk about taxing BPs, the likes of Shells, and um, and those, um, what, what do you think would be the disadvantages there? Okay, well, um, one thing is BP and Shell pay out a lot of dividends, particularly to pension funds. Mm-hmm. So pensioners um, or future pensioners would would suffer. These companies are also doing a lot of investment, and um, it's not clear that current investment would fall. But if they think that you know, whenever you know they start making more profits, they're going to be taxed. That may make them less likely to do investment. And it's you know very important that energy companies invest. And um, particularly in in renewables, so so again, I I, I wouldn't rule out a um, windfall tax, but also I, I think that the, the magnitude of what realistically could be raised from a windfall tax is going to be fairly small compared with the sort of um, you know costs of the uh, various um, packages we need to implement to sort of save people from um, suffering too much because of the energy price increase. So um, I'd, I'd suggest there's a very limited role for things such as um, windfall taxes. Professor, if you were the decision maker here, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you in, a, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the dock for a, for a minute, if I, if I may. Um, if you were the decision maker and you had a choice between taxing BP and Shell and others like them, uh, versus accumulating 150 billion pounds of debt on the government to subsidise, what would you do? Okay. Well, I might impose um, an extra tax on um, oil companies such as um, Shell um, or uh, BP or, or whoever it is. Yes, yes, I might do that. But you know, I'm stressing. Um, I don't think it's a panacea. I. Mm think, um, you know, the feasible um, amount of money we can raise is going to be large compared with the 
spending needs. I mean, you mentioned uh, 150 billion pounds, didn't you? Um, so um, that's not, you know, I, I, I don't think windfall taxes could raise anything like that. You know, it might be, uh, I think the, you know, Rishi Sunak did actually introduce a windfall tax. Well, he, he didn't call it that, but I think it was a windfall tax in his um, in a recent statement, um, but I think that's projected to raise about you know five billion something like that. So I'd emphasise well, windfall taxes may play some role, but um, you know it's still a fairly limited role. You know other things will need to be done as well. Right. Um, we are we are in an inflationary environment, and then we're also. Uh, expecting economy to go into recession or stagnate. Um, how how big a crisis is is um, a big an issue? Do you think the government has in terms of um, stagflation that we we are about to see? Uh, well, yes, I think it is a, a serious issue, um, but um, you know there are various scenarios. It's going to be. Very, you know, it's difficult to know what's going to happen. But I think the most realistic scenario is to suppose that inflation, you know, is going to rise. It's going to be high uh, for a period, but then it's likely to fall back quite considerably. And uh, a sort of reason for that is when um, there's a really massive increase in in energy prices. You know, assuming the energy prices don't continue to increase, let's assume they've sort of reached uh, a peak or near peak, then um, if we wait another year or so, the year-on-year increase in energy prices is going to uh, drop massively. Uh, So that's going to produce a very large fall in the rate of inflation. So I'm expecting, you know... um, um, uh, under various uh, assumptions, uh, you know, we, you know, we we, we can't um, be completely sure. But my um, expectation would be that inflation will fall back quite considerably in, um, you know, for uh, let's say the next uh, two two years. And if that happens, then um, I expect the. Bank of England can bring interest rates down again. I mean, it's expected to raise interest rates to uh, 3% next year, or perhaps even more, which is fairly modest still by historic standards. But um, should um, inflation fall back and should there be a rise in unemployment, um, then the Bank of England could could bring interest rates down. So, um, you know, I think that... uh, problem is is probably manageable I, I i don't see a protracted recession there might be a a fairly short-term recession but um uh you know i don't think a a, a long-term recession is is likely uh, professor finally in your opinion do you think the government is doing all it can in in these circumstances or do you think more needs to be done by the government in terms of intervention, in terms of some of the other things that you mentioned? Okay, well, that again is a good question. I think the government has done a fair amount um, as far as support is concerned and in you know, freezing uh, gas prices, albeit at a higher level. 
Um, I mean, it's probably not what I would have most recommended, but at least it is, uh, you know, a policy. Um, I think probably the government could do more to compensate uh, those who are most affected by um, the energy price uh, increases. Mm. Um, but, you know, as far as the sort of long-term growth of the economy is concerned, um, which requires increases in productivity and the like, um, I'm not sure the government is uh, doing very much. In fact, I, I don't know what, what it's doing. Perhaps we'll, um, we'll um, see when the Chancellor makes his uh, statement, which is, I believe, on, on Friday. But I don't see many uh, measures forthcoming at the moment which will raise the overall level of economic growth, you know, the growth of um, of gross domestic product, which is, of course, crucial for our living standards. But I'll, you know, I'll wait and see what um, Kwasi Kwarteng actually um, announces um, next week. Uh, Professor, I said finally, but uh, this will be the final question, I promise. Um, what's, what's your view on, um, on the size of the government? Uh, uh, do you think that needs to be cut in, in order to, or, or should be cut. Uh, there is certainly a view out there uh, to provide um, some cushion for the government to reduce its um, its expenditures. Okay, well, that's a, another good question. Um, you know, um, one thing uh, I might say is that perhaps that's more a political question than an economics <laughs> question. It reflects your, you know, views about the... Mm role of the state and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, the government expenditure is high, um, you know, relative to GDP. It's higher than it's been for some considerable time. Um, so perhaps that's a cause for concern. But, um, you know, if you want to cut it, you know, please tell me which mm. service you going to are, are you going to cut are you going to cut nhs spending well surely not surely you mm. know there's going to uh, there needs to be more nhs spending mm. about defense spending i think list trust has promised to raise that to three percent of gdp mm. and so forth i don't see many um parts of government spending which realistically could be cut so um i think um, in the short term, uh, I don't think there's much scope for cutting government spending. Of course, what we should be doing is undertaking measures which will grow the economy. And if we do that, then um, as the economy grows, then the share of government spending in um, GDP should, should decline, you know, providing we... Um, you don't let um, government spending rip. So over the longer term, then then perhaps um, a cut in government spending um, as a sh share of GDP is is something that um, we should um, uh, envisage. But you know, it's not something I see happening in the short run. Brilliant, Professor John Fender. Thank you so very much for joining us, and thank you for. Uh, for uh, bearing with us uh, on all the difficult questions. Appreciate that. Okay, that's, that's no problem. There were some good questions. <laughs> Excellent, Professor. Really enjoyed talking to you. Have a like, great day. Have a good day.
So that was Professor John Fender, who is Professor Emeritus uh, of Macroeconomics at the University of Birmingham, answering all the difficult questions about um, the current difficult environment that we are in, uh, both inflation uh, as well as the upcoming recession. So, um, right. Um, the number to call should you want to join in this discussion is 0208-687-7878. Please tweet us at Voice of Islam UK um, to tell us what you think about it, about inflation, what, uh, what are your thoughts about the current crisis, and what do you suggest could be the possible solutions, or you can also call us uh, to join in this live discussion uh, from the Voice of Islam studios here in South London. Let's take a quick break now, and when we come back, we will continue this discussion on inflation. Sometimes it is seen that a prayer is carried on until it is about to be accepted, and then the supplicant gets tired, and the result is failure and frustration. Frustration results in the denial and effectiveness of prayer and gradually culminates in the denial of God. It is said, if there is a God who accepts prayer, why have not those prayers been accepted which were offered over a long period? If those who think thus and stumble were to reflect upon their lack of perseverance, they would come to know that all their frustration is the result of their own haste and impatience which generated an ill concept of the powers of God and resulted in despair. So one should never get tired. At a time when Christian empires ruled the world, when atheistic philosophies were beginning to spread, and when the Muslims were turning away from their own faith, one man took up the pen in defense of Islam. First time he sees him, he says that my heart testified that this was the Mirza who I'd come to see and I would be ready to lay down my life for him. This is the story of a humble man who became the Messiah of the age, who sacrificed everything for his faith, who faced the most foul opposition. He writes himself, in fact, in February 1903 of the Review of Religions that even people in my village never inquired about where I went or what I was going to do. This is Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, Messiah of the Age. Simplified answers to frequently asked questions. Does Islam permit organ donation? Saving a human life is the duty of a Muslim if it is in his capacity to do so. So organ donation to save a life of another person is something that will be highly praised and encouraged in Islam. But there is one condition. If organ donation is done during the lifetime of the donor, like for example in the case of someone donating one of his kidneys to another person, then the donation should not cause threat to the life of the donor or be a cause of any harm to the health of the donor. Other than that, which has been mentioned, Islam fully permits organ donation. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. 
Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you. Welcome back to this live edition of the Drive Time Show from the South London Studios of Voice of Islam. Uh, you're listening to Daniel Azia and Imam Salman Kamar. And we're talking today about inflation. Uh, and before we went uh, to, on to the break, we were talking to Professor John Fender, who was uh, giving us his take on um, uh, on the current issues we have around the economy. Um, if I can come, come to you, um, uh, Imam Kamar, what what are you hearing um, from various people, friends, family, neighbors, other people uh, around inflation? Do you think it it is it is really hurting people, or is it something that's only in the papers? Um, well, first of all, yes, it is hurting people. Mm-hmm. Um, people that I know personally, people, I mean, within our society, we obviously speak to each other and mm-hmm. we, 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 we share our experiences. Now, I mean, for, for a common man, um, we, we don't speak in percentage, right? Mm-hmm. We, we just speak in numbers. So we say, well, uh, petrol prices went from 130 mm-hmm. something to Two, two, two pounds yeah. and then they came a little uh, back but at the end of the day yes this is a massive um, jump which is affecting people r- around us isn't it that then obviously uh, also reminds me of, of the example of for instance um, the second caliph of Islam Sayyidina Umar mm-hmm. may God be pleased with him that he would actually um, so change into a sort of let's say common man's attire mm. and he would walk around the the streets of the city just to see if his people are okay mm. and uh, there is the example of, of um, a mother that was trying to put her ch- child to sleep but because the child was hungry and the mother didn't have enough money to, to buy milk for him um, so he went back immediately and arranged for that mother to have um, enough to at least be able to, to feed her children and that's actually when uh, the concept of child benefits started back then, right? Mm. So, 1400 years ago. 1400 years ago. So, welfare state, yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, this is something we are proud of here mm. um, in the West today, but this is something, again, very Islamic, if you, if you want to look at it that way. Mm. So, at the end of the day, it is the responsibility of the people in authority, the people that are making the decisions, mm. to worry about the people they are governing over basically right mm. it shouldn't be um, the other way around that we I mean at, at the moment it seems at least that there is a massive gap between what's happening on the grassroots mm. and what is being spoken about um, in the on the higher tables mm. if you want to put it that way so yes I mean just to, uh, to come back to your question Yes, people are feeling anxious. People are worried. And they want changes. And they want those changes as soon as possible. Hmm. And they want to be able to not just live on the edge, rather be able to, I mean, to be able to have at least one or two holidays in a year and have some savings along that is not too much to ask for. But at the moment, the way we see it, there are many people that are struggling to even do that. And... Again, coming back to the point we've spoken about twice before, it's it's about uh, eating versus eating. I mm-hmm. mean, if we go to that extent, that is really inhumane, and uh, people in authority should really be thinking about this. And you know, again, um, anecdotally, uh, anecdotally, you're, you're 
when you say that people are obviously affected and it's hurting people, how, how do you think people are generally coping with, with all this at the moment? I'm, I don't think it's it's a matter about coping. It's just a matter about surviving at the moment. Really? And it's really just um, mm-hmm. doing as much as you can to, again, to just stay on top of the water, right? Mm-hmm. Um, holding on to whatever you can. And uh, as as you mentioned earlier, and we also spoke with Professor Fender about this, that it is looking very grim, and we are going to go in a in a worse um, situation very soon. At the moment, people probably still have something to hold on to, but this won't be the case for very long. So, um, the the population living under the poverty line is that that number is definitely going to grow. And that obviously then causes uh, civil unrest, mm. right? Right, and that can obviously lead to much, much bigger problems if if we look into the future. Uh, so again, this is something our uh, uh, current caliph, uh, Mirza Masoor Ahmed, may Allah be helper, has been guiding the world towards that they have to be able to give everyone their due rights so that we can live in a peaceful society, right? Mm. Talking about those rights and, and and perhaps something that I think uh, we can probably come to towards the end of the segment when we're, we're talking about the the Islamic perspective around around this whole discussion, a very important and pertinent discussion. Do you think um, food and shelter should be providing food and shelter should be the responsibility of the government? You mentioned uh, the example of the Second Caliph of Islam going back fourteen hundred years or so. Um, is that something you think should be should be the responsibility um, of the state? Uh, does Islam guarantee uh, those sort of uh, fundamental rights? Is there are there any precedents uh, towards that uh, in Islamic history? And what what uh, what would be the Islamic thought around around that? So so uh, something perhaps for you to to think about and mother over the next uh, ten minutes, Imam Gamar, while we. Um, come back to this uh, this all important question. I think we're we're supposed to go to our our next guest uh, now, who is uh, 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 John Hearn, who is an economist, an author, and university lecturer on programs in economics, uh, banking, and finance. Um, so let's um, let's speak to him, and then we'll circle back to uh, to this question uh, towards the end of um, uh, of the segment. Um, good afternoon, uh, John. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh yes, we can hear you <laughs> loud and clear now. Thank you very much. Welcome to the program, John. Pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, let me start by asking you, um, uh, you know, your thoughts on how big a challenge uh, the current inflation and the expected recession um, is for the government. Yeah, it's an enormous challenge, and it's an enormous challenge because very few people understand what causes the inflation. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to get rid of it until you know what causes it. Right. Uh, and uh, if you look around the world, it's fairly easy to see the only cause of inflation. It's nothing to do with the Ukraine war. It's nothing to do with energy prices, supply chain. None of the, All these are deflections from the actual cause. The actual cause is central banks in all countries. You can only ever have inflation in one currency, and it's quite possible to have high inflation in one currency and deflation in another currency. It's what happens to the currency, and the central bank determines that monetary demand. 
So if you look around the world now, you'll see central banks where monetary demand has grown fairly slowly and inflation is still fairly low, despite the fact that there have been all these uh, price hikes in energy and other things, then you'll find other countries where it's much higher, where um, central banks have expanded monetary demand much faster than the rate of growth of output. So if you go to, say, Japan or China, you'll see rates of inflation around 2.4%, 2.5%. Uh, if you go all the way down to uh, Turkey, you'll find them at uh, uh, 80%, and Argentina at 100%, and then you'll find them in the UK around 10%, and uh, in, in the US about 10%. So if you understand that, you understand what causes inflation, then you know what to do to get rid of it. And what you've got to do is to slow the rate of growth of monetary demand in those countries where the rate of inflation is too high. Um, if you understand that and do that, then you begin to solve the problem. So you've got to stop thinking that energy prices cause inflation, uh, that higher food prices cause inflation, supply chains cause inflation. None of those cause inflation. They affect prices in individual markets. And they affect people's um, income and spending power, their value of money, because everyone, if you like, has their own little bit of inflation. It's what I buy. What's happened to the prices of the things I buy? So for some people, inflation will seem much higher than other people. And that's, if you like, where you've got to deal with the problems. So, John, essentially, what you're suggesting is the opposite of quantitative easing. Uh, How easy or difficult is it for a central bank to contract monetary supply? It's actually quite difficult, and they shouldn't do it. So I'm not a great fan of quantitative easing, um, but quantitative easing, despite what central banks tell you, is quite simply creating new money, and you create new money by the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve buying government securities and printing money to buy those securities. Now, when that happens, that causes inflation. Once you've caused that inflation, you can't reverse that process. If you try and reverse that process, you actually make it worse. But what you've got to do is stop that process continuing. So you've got to slow inflation, bring it back down to target 2%. So the Federal Reserve and indeed the Bank of England talk about quantitative tightening. And there's two elements of quantitative tightening. One is you could actually sell the debt that the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are holding back into the economy, and that would remove cash. Now, that could then be recession, contraction, and problems. Or you stop when um, the securities you hold mature, you don't replace them. For example, at the moment, quantitative easing in the UK is $895 billion. Now, when, shall we say, 95 billion get immatures this year, it will then go down from 895 to 800. But the Bank of England then buys another 95. In other words, injects more spending power into the economy. Now, I'm quite happy that it shouldn't do that. It should just let quantitative easing contract, which is sometimes referred to as tightening. And that's the sort of tightening that you want. You don't want the tightening, which actually sells back this debt into the economy, which is what the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England are thinking of doing, because that just takes money out of the economy, and that will try and bring, if you like, a deflation into the economy, and that will have a much more damaging uh, recessionary effect than just stopping the inflation, slowing the growth. And again, that's quite interesting, because if you look at the broad money aggregates at the moment, most of economists are telling you inflation is going to carry on going up, 
because of energy prices and because of other costs. That's wrong. You look at the broad monetary aggregates, they've been slowing down over the last six months, and that will mean that inflation will start to slow towards the end of this year, early next year, uh, if I'm correct, if it is the monetary aggregates with a time lag of about a year to 18 months that determine the rate of inflation. So we're going into, if you like, a period which will be called disinflation, not deflation. There won't be a fall in the average level of prices. There will just be a slowing of the rate of growth in the level of prices, if that makes sense. What effect will that have on investment? The the effect on investment is actually related much more to interest rate policy. And there are two components of monetary policy. What I've described so far is dealing with the quantity of money. The price of money or the interest rate is something wouldn't, different. Uh, John, wouldn't uh, crowding out uh, uh, affect that as well? You know, if, if the well, government exactly, doesn't, yeah? exactly. What happens is if you put interest rates up, which they're trying to put interest rates up to stop the inflation, which is the wrong thing to do, but if they put interest rates up, there's a simple inverse relationship between asset prices and interest rates. You put up interest rates, stock markets will fall, house prices will fall, asset prices will fall. So that's simple and straightforward, um, but that's not, um, that's a, a bad side effect, if you like, of thinking monetary policy can be pursued through interest rates. Uh, it can't, and I've always argued interest rates should uh, be determined by market forces, not by manipulation uh, through the central bank. Right. Okay. So, um, mm-hmm. if if you were heading the central bank today, what would you do? I would say, as they are doing, they're not talking about what they're doing. They're actually doing what is correct at the moment. You think so? Okay. They're slowing. They're slowing the rate of growth of um, monetary demand, which will bring the rate of inflation down. So they're doing the right thing, but we have a problem. Because in the UK, both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss promised to spend lots more money and cut taxes. That makes the fiscal borrowing requirement much larger. And the temptation when you've got much larger fiscal borrowing requirements is to print money to finance them. So what you might find is that there will be a, a... a peak for inflation towards the end of this year and it will start to fall and then governments will go, ah, right, that's great, it's going down, now we can do this and they'll start to do something which will bring that inflation back. I mean, ask me in six months' time and I'll tell you what the next step is uh, when I see the reaction to the overspending that uh, Sunak and Truss uh, have promised us. What's your view on um, subsidies? Do you think they work in the long run? No, they're, they're, they're equally bad uh, subsidies. You just got to let the price mechanism work through. What subsidies do uh, is, is what politicians want. They affect everybody, so they affect votes. People look at that and go, oh, they've kept the prices down. Now, 90% of people can pay their energy bills when they go up. 10% can't. Mm. If you want to help people, you help that 10%. You don't give 90% of the people uh, cheaper energy uh, by subsidising energy. That's just a waste of money and a waste of resources. So I'm against subsidies or anything that interferes with the price mechanism. So I'm quite happy for energy prices to go up and I'm quite happy to target those people who need help and help them. Don't bother about the people who can afford higher energy prices. Just throwing money 
at the economy so that everyone thinks they're benefiting for a year or two is just wasting money. And finally, John, your thoughts on how difficult uh, the next few months, the next year actually, is going to be for the average uh, Joe Blogs? For the average Joe Blogs, it won't be too bad. It's for the poor Joe Blogs, it'll be bad. Because it'll be those people, if you like, who you might describe as being near the poverty line, uh, not having any spare disposable income, who will find that they have got uh, higher energy bills and there's a choice. They've either got to use less energy uh, or they've got to um, spend more money on energy and less money on other things. That's the sort of choice that they make. But what you want always is you want the price mechanism to work. Sounds tough, but if you're protecting the poor and the really vulnerable people, it's not so bad. But you let energy prices go up, you let energy firms make big profits, other firms will go, quite big profits here, let's get into this market, let's create more energy, let's create cheaper energy, let's compete, let's have new ways of doing things, let's experiment here, there and everywhere. That's the way you get the prices down. When you looked at the oil crisis in the 70s, that's exactly what happened. Quadrupling of oil prices, petrol prices went up. And as soon as petrol prices went up, they never did any subsidies and rationing, thank goodness. What happened was people were attracted into this area and the car manufacturers thought, right, we've got to make cars which use less petrol. Uh, we've got to find uh, more um, alternative forms of fuel. So technology and the market solves the problem but if you interfere with that and try and keep the prices artificially low you stop the whole of that process which is change for the better and uh, to create greater efficiency so we wait and see we we shall indeed john <laughs> thank you very much uh, for joining us today really appreciate okay. your input to the program Okay, cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers, bye-bye. So that was John Hearn, who is an economist, author, and university lecturer on programs in economics, banking, and finance. Um, And that almost uh, brings us towards the end of the segment, but as we um, uh, were discussing earlier, before we end uh, the segment, um, Imam Salman, your your thoughts uh, on what we've been talking about? So, yeah... um Coming back to the question that we were going to discuss before right. our guest caller. Now, it is the government's duty to look after the well-being mm. of the people that are living within the land or country. Right. Right. That does mean providing food and shelter. Mm. But at the same time, because Islam is such a beautiful um, religion that it really takes care of society from all perspectives. Islam also teaches us that we should be educating our coming generations mm. so that when they grow up, they become valuable assets of society. Right. So they don't rely on the government anymore. Rather, they become an asset to society. And then there is others that are going to be relying on those people and that sort of carries on as, as a, as a mm. chain effect, essentially. Mm. So, yes, it is the government's job to make sure that everyone has has um, the... The, 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 the freedom they need they have shelter, they have food but they also have access to, to good and possibly free education so that they don't just always rely on the government, rather it is about making them essential parts of society right, so if so they can give back, exactly, so that they can give back and help others otherwise because that will be just a chain reaction that just keeps happening, right so we, we don't want that, 
What mm. we want is to progress as a society, and that is what Islam teaches you. But yes, a hundred percent, it is the government's job to look after the well-being of every single person that lives within their um, remit, their authority. Mm. In, in the same way, when you when you're talking about education, when you're talking about uh, you know getting the next generation ready, um, how important do you think it is to get the next generation ready um, in the sphere of entrepreneurship? Um, for example, when I was growing up, I, I you know everybody was talking about either being a doctor or an engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, nobody. Um, probably even still talks about um uh, you know uh, growing up and becoming uh, an entrepreneur um the founder of islam however was was uh, was a trader he was yeah. he was in business yeah. so how how important is is learning the ropes uh to do business within an islamic uh, society oh definitely it is it is um most important and again is islam doesn't just teach you to be obedient to god or or, or be just be busy within your worship rather for instance in um surah al-jumma in the holy quran it states that when you have done praying your your jumma prayers then go back towards your trait mm. and um basically earn from what god has provided for you in the world right mm. so islam does definitely encourage that as well but obviously we 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 do then have to find a balance somewhere that we, right. we we can't just encourage everyone to go that way because you you do need your people that are those uh arts typical jobs if you want to put it that way mm. but yes you are going to need people in in every kind of of field of work limiting um the coming generations to the the let's say popular three or four fields that that would be wrong obviously slavically speaking Right, excellent. Thank you very much uh, for that, uh, Imam Kamal. And that brings us uh, towards the end of this segment, which was about uh, inflation. Uh, we've talked to um, two economists, uh, Professor John Fender, who is a professor emeritus uh, macroeconomics at University of Birmingham. And we've also spoken to John Hearn, who's an economist, author, and a university lecturer. Um, we shall now take uh, a break for the four o'clock news. And when we come back, we shall move on to the second topic uh, of the day, which is about what we hinted uh, slightly earlier uh, about the founder of Islam, uh, Prophet Muhammad, the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, him being the perfect man. There is no excellence, the possibility of which is vouched for by reason, of which God Almighty is bereft like an unfortunate human being. The wisdom of no wise one can point to an excellence which is not to be found in God Almighty. The maximum of all excellences that a person can conceive of is found in him. He is perfect from every point of view, in his being, his attributes, and his good qualities, and he is absolutely free from all defects. This is a truth which distinguishes a true religion from a false one. When a person experiences in the shape of beneficence those divine attributes which constitute his beauty, His faith is strengthened beyond measure, and he is drawn towards God, as iron is drawn towards a magnet. His love for God increases manyfold, and his trust in God becomes very strong. Having experienced that all his good is in God, his hopes in God are strengthened. He continues to incline towards God naturally, without pretense and affectation. 
and finds himself dependent upon God's help every moment, and believes firmly, through the contemplation of divine attributes, that he will be successful, because he has experienced, in his own person, many instances of God's grace, favour, and generosity. Therefore, his supplications proceed from the fountain of power and certainty, and his resolve becomes extremely firm and unshakable. In the name of Allah, the most gracious, ever merciful. Assalamu alaikum, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all, and welcome back to the Drive Time Show here at the Voice of Islam Radio. You're joined by um, Daniel and myself, Salman, over the next hour or 55 minutes rather, God willing, in which we will try to really um, discuss the life and the character of the most perfect man, the Holy Prophet Muhammad wasallam. peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um, really a topic which um, we have not just books but volumes written on. Um, there are articles, there are addresses, there are speeches. Um, and to really uh, be able to get um, some information on this topic or share something with our audience, um, our listeners, um, within the next 54 odd minutes will be very difficult. Um, really, if, if I think about the topic, Daniel, mm. I don't know where to start from. Right. I don't know which aspect to actually look at because all of them are so amazing. Mm. Um, there isn't a single aspect of life which our Holy Master didn't master in. Um, He really proved that you can be the ultimate human being if you you have the right mindset, if you have the right intentions. Mm, Absolutely. And um, it is so unfortunate that uh, um, most of the world is ignorant Mm -hmm. to that fact. Uh, Most of the people out there do not know what the Prophet really stood for, who he was, uh, uh, you know his character the the his caliber yeah people uh, have no idea what um what they don't know yeah absolutely um you see in the holy quran there is a w- verse um in which Allah the almighty states that i today i have completed for you your religion mm-hmm. right and i've chosen islam to be that 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 religion um now God Almighty didn't have just one person he could have potentially chosen to to bring that message to the world. There is one complete religion. That one message needs to be passed on to all of humanity. So he chose the best of the best, the the most pure, the the most beloved to to Allah the Almighty, really. Mm. And that was our Holy Master Muhammad. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Um... There are millions of people in the world. I mean, at the moment, there are billions. But if, if you go mm. um, into history, I mean, how, how many people are there? Have there been? And, and we look around us and we see some really inspiring people. We see some very amazing mm. people. We, we see some very holy people as well. And then you think, how how much of of, of, of a beautiful and, and, and most perfect personality that must have been we we have only read about this in in books and narrations in the holy quran and 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 other narrations that that we get through history but 
sometimes um, if we just sit back and imagine um, the 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 caliber of of of, of this div- uh, of, of this holy prophet Muhammad sallallahu may peace be upon him, it is it is amazing and uh, again words can just not put that. Um, together what we are trying to say so let's start from the start so you know he um, he was born uh, in uh, in in Mecca uh, a small place um, within the Arabian Peninsula uh, at that time uh, where a tribe called Quraysh uh, uh, which the tribe called Quraysh made uh, uh, or called its home Um before he was born, he, he his father had passed away, mm-hmm. so he was um, born an orphan. Yeah, um, and then his mother passed away um, I, when he was six, I yes. believe, uh, yes. as well. So at a very young age, he was only six when uh, he he lost his um, his mother, and then he was raised uh, by his uh, grandfather, mm-hmm. who also passed away when I believe he was eight. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, paint that picture for us. You know, living in uh, in a very tribal society where um, relations mean everything, and here you are, um, really uh, at at the mercy of the tribe. Really, you see, um, there is a point that has been mentioned by the second caliph of the Ahmadiyya community, Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed. And he says that whenever Allah the Almighty chooses a prophet um, among the people, he makes sure that that person, from a worldly point of view, is is very poor, and uh, he he doesn't have any support as such, because when that person then reaches his his pinnacle, no one can ever say that well he had support from left, right, center, wherever, right? It is all divine help that he's getting. So our beloved prophet. Because he was the example of for, for for all mankind, his his beginning, as you mentioned, is he he was born and his father had already passed away. He was only six year old when his mother passed away, uh, on the way back from a journey, and then um, his his grandfather started looking after him. Again, two years later, he also passes away. Now he moves to his uncle Abu Talib, uh, and he lived with him for another six years or so. And, and there are different narrations how he would um, take him with him on on the different um, trades and uh, he, um, in, a, in, in, in a small... Um, I mean, it, it wasn't really a war, but let's say it's sort of tribal mm. um, dispute there was. He would also pass him the arrows to just to sort of, you know, because he was teaching him mm. how... How to live in 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 a tribal society in a tribal society really, mm. but that child did not have what a normal child did at that time, which is parents, mother, father, someone looking after him, someone clothing him, someone feeding him. Mm. He did not have any of that. Yes, he had all the love in the world from his uh, mm. grandfather initially, and then from his uh, uncle later on, but. But no parents, no parents, no education, no education at all. And and it, let's paint a bit bit of the picture of the the society uh, in Arabia at that time as well. So you know this is a, this is the time when um, uh, drinking is um, a, a, the person who drinks the most is, is is considered to be the most pious person. Uh, the uh, the person who has uh, has relationship with with 
most women is also considered to be uh, a person of status yeah. or stature. Yeah. Um, so a very promiscuous society, a society where um, daughters are uh, buried alive. Yeah. Um, so no rules-based society, very promiscuous society. And here is somebody who um, who doesn't have parents, has really no uh, no clear guidance in terms of the direction he needs to take. Yeah, uh, absolutely nothing. And also, um, as you mentioned, I mean, this is a very superstitious society. Mm. It is a very barbaric society. And that, I mean, to grow up within that society and not being affected by it at all is is a miracle within itself. Um, we are going to speak about this in obviously in, in more detail. But before that, uh, let's speak with our first guest caller, uh, which is um, Imam Sajil Ahmed, who is a missionary of the Ahmadiyya community um, serving in the United States. Uh, Imam Sajil, assalamu alaikum. Thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the Drive Time Show. Uh, assalamu alaikum wa Jazakallah for uh, taking out your time to be with us today. Jazakallah um, for having me on. Jazakallah. Imam Sajil, as, as you know, we are discussing um, our beloved master, the Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And we are going to ask you, obviously, a, a few questions in this regard um, so that we can um, share this with our listeners as well. So, how would you sum up um, the qualities or character of the Prophet uh, that made him so extraordinary? I mean, it is a very, very difficult question. Maybe not answerable at all, but yes, I am going to put you into the, in the, out of the test. Jazakumullah <laughs> for such a beautiful question. And, um, uh, you know, this question is always so beautiful to address because there are so many ways that make our beloved Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam the perfect man, and thus make his character so extraordinary. Um, I currently serve in one of the most remote countries in the world, in Micronesia, and you know one of the most extraordinary things to me, and I, I, I'm kind of basing this answer on something that dawned upon me throughout some of the experiences here, is that the reason why, one of the reasons why that the the uh, you know, the character and the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, can be described as perfect and so extraordinary is because you can take and implement any such teaching of the Holy Prophet wasallam, and you can see and you can put it through a litmus, litmus test and you can see that no matter which people you relay the message of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam, to in, in whichever era, in whichever time, and you'll see that the message of Islam always comes out in a perfect manner and always reforms people in such extraordinary ways. And one of those examples is that sometimes, um, you know, you you deal with different cultures, and one of the some you know different cultures have different ways of approaching and how to address one another and how we address one another. And I've seen that in certain cultures, for example. Um, there is a bit of a reluctance in being the first person to address the other person. And so, you know, this, uh, you know, perplexed me a little bit in the beginning because when we are young, we are always taught that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, 
would always instruct the Sahaba to be the first to say salam to the point that, you know, even if there was a tree that would come in between the Sahaba, they would then again address one another and be the first person to address and say salam to one another. And we see that in the Hadith, for example, the Holy Prophet wasallam said that you will not enter paradise until you have faith and you will not have faith until you love each other. Mm-hmm. And you can only love each other if if you spread peace, if you spread your salam to one another. And so, you know, when you know, I began to relay these teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Um, and for example, I saw this and I said, look, Islam teaches us that whenever we meet each other, we should be the first person to say Islam to the point that, you know, it, it, not, it should be a bit of a you know, a peaceful competition in, in, in gaining the, the teachings. And in this way, when you look at the benefits of it, when you're the first person to address the other person, it breaks egos, it brings about love, and it brings about the love of God Almighty. And so, you know, these small things may seem, you know, rather small in their own way, but when we look at them and look at the way that emulating every single aspect of the life of the Holy Prophet even if it is in this small way of being the first to address one another, um, it brings about such an extraordinary reformation in every society in every people and in every time. And that for me is uh, you know, a, a, another example of why I look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him and I look at his qualities and I think of them as immensely perfect because whenever you emulate them, even to the smallest degree, it brings about an extraordinary change in society. And we see that just as you were, uh, you know, uh, speaking of before, you know, you look at the society that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, came in, and you look at those same people, and those same people, after implementing the teachings of Islam, became like, you know, as if they were like prophets. And so that change and that you know that change in reformation and uh, the way that the prophet muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam carrying the message of islam truly changed people during his time and continues to change people today so you know, i'm sure can we paint a, a picture for some of our listeners somebody who may be listening in for the first time somebody who um has no introduction um, to islam and is hearing uh, this for the first time and hearing about the Prophet of Islam for the first time. So we were painting a little bit of a picture about the pre-historic, pre-Islamic society uh, of Arabia and um, and the lifestyle that there was. So w- when you say that the society was transformed, paint us a bit of a picture. What 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 happened to to all of those people who used to bury their daughters alive, who used to um, uh, who used to uh, have relationships with hundreds of women, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Well, you see a transformation in their lives that those same people that, for example, used to bury their daughters, they, you know, they, they were brought into a religion that till today is seen as an extraordinary example of women's rights. Um, you see people who before would, you know, uh, treat other people like, uh, for example, you see that, uh, you know, the slavery was one of those huge aspects that was abundant before the coming of Islam. And you see how Islam completely changed the perspective on slavery and brought about equality 
and freed those people of their bondage and slavery and brought them towards an extraordinary uh, equality and excellency. And the example of how Islam has, uh, you know, transformed the lives of people from who they used to be to now being an example is extraordinary. And it can only have been done through the teachings of Islam and the teachings of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, that, is, that he received from Allah the Almighty. Absolutely. And I mean, these are um, virtues of the Prophet whenever we look at them. And every time that question, I think, is asked to someone, he will have a new answer because that's just how many aspects uh, there are to his life. Um, Imam Sajil, now one thing we are obviously aware of is that when people don't um, have an answer to the Islamic religion or the, the, the teachings of the Prophet what they tend to do is then start criticizing his uh, his person and his character. Now, one of the most common criticisms that we um, face these days are in regards to his marriage with Hazrat Aisha uh, because of her, her, her age, obviously. So, if you could tell our listeners a bit about what was the age of Hazrat Aisha when our Prophet married her and why did he marry her? And is there any sort of historical context under which this marriage took place? Jazakumullah again for uh, such a wonderful question. Um, you know, after the passing of the beloved wife of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Hazrat Khadija radiallahu anha, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had a dream in which he was shown uh, that the angel Gabriel came to him alayhi salatu and he presented him with a green cloth made of silk and inside was a picture of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha now um, you know when he saw this dream the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam didn't immediately do anything because he said that if it was the will of God it would happen on, his own, on its own and so we see that shortly after this Another companion, Hazrat Khawla radiallahu anha, she came to the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and she mentioned the name of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha. Now, the age of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha is something, uh, just like you have rightly said, is something that's used as a very uh, weaponized kind of uh, uh, argument against the life of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi But if you look at it from a logical point of view, there's absolutely no need for it to be an allegation. Um, we do know that there were no records of, you know, uh, like birth records at the time of, uh, you know, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, but we do know, and it's an established fact from the scholars of Islam, that Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha was 10 years younger than her older sister, Hazrat Asma radiallahu anha. Mm -hmm. Now, again, scholars have proven and scholars have a consensus that Hazrat Asma radiallahu anha died at the age of 100, which coincides with 73 Hijri, which means that at the first year of migration and in the first Hijri, she must have been 27 years of age and if she was 10 years older than Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha, then Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha in the first Hijri must have been 17 years of age. And we know that her marriage to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa was in the second Hijri, 
which makes her around 18 to 19 years of age. Now, keeping all this in mind, um, different scholars have different opinions. Some have based her age around 15 to 16 years. But we do know for a fact that she had attained full age of maturity, and it was in no way an objectionable marriage. You know, if you look at the historical and societal standards of Arabia at that time, it was common practice for people to get married early because of the, you know, the the climate, you know, the the um, uh, you know the just the way that people, uh, you know, developed during that time. Uh, people got married earlier because they developed earlier. And so you see that, you know, the the age of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha or the marriage of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to his wife, it, it was never an objection in any of the historical records. It was never an objection among the companions of the Prophet Muhammad, the enemies of the Islam, or even a clash in the societal norms of the era. And we even see that the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, in one of his sayings that khairukum khairukum li ahlihi wa ana khairukum li ahli that if you want to see an example uh, he said that the best people among you are the ones who treat their family the best and if you want to look at the best example look at me and so we see that every aspect of his life and you know the the hadith are very very you know detailed in every single aspect of his life we see that all of it, you know, his family, no matter his wife, no matter his children, no matter anyone, whenever they spoke of him, whenever they looked at his life, they always looked at his life with immense love, with immense respect, and there was never any source of allegation in this way or in any way in terms of how he treated them. And so it, this, this criticism regarding the age of Hazrat Aisha radiallahu anha is unfortunately unfounded and doesn't hold any... Um, way in which it could be of blame or it could be of any um, wrong upon the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Certainly. Um, Jazakallah for that, uh, Imam Sajil. Now, another um, question I have for you is in regards to the Islamic teaching about violence and uh, obviously, I mean, we within um, Islam, we Muslims believe that he loved uh, and promoted justice and he also cared for the most vulnerable. But then at the same time, if we look towards um, mainly the West uh, in this day and age, in people's minds, Islam is associated with violence and, uh, I mean, barbaric uh, behavior, really. So can you explain this contradiction to us? Why is it that in this day and age, Islam is being associated with violence? Well, uh you know, keeping in um, line with, I guess, the last question, uh, one of the, uh, you know, a, a beautiful way of summing up the life of the Prophet Muhammad or Islam is in the words of Hazrat Khadija radiallahu anha, when the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam began to receive revelation. At that time, you know, he had just received the first revelation of the Holy Quran and he had came, come back home and at that time, he was very distressed because obviously it was a it was a very very uh, large you know uh, event in his life. And so when she looked upon him, she said, and I quote her words: "I assure you that Allah will never disgrace you, for you protect your kin, assume responsibility for those who cannot do so for themselves, 
give charity to the needy, do greater good than anyone else, treat your guests with honor, and respect and assist those striving to do good. And so we see these words of Hazrat Khadija radiallahu anhu, anha, and they are a testament to his life and who he was. And in a way, they are also testament and a summary of what Islam is. And so when we look at the life of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, it's true as you have said that, you know, he was always a proponent of justice, of love, of peace, of helping the vulnerable. And there are many factors today that, you know, in my mind are the reasons why Islam has, you know, been associated, unfortunately, with violence. And one of those things I can say for a fact is that Islam, unfortunately, um, is used as a politicized weapon by uh, certain leaders. And because of this, you know, it is very easy to make people fear Islam and deem them as the others, that is that Muslims are not humans just like us, Muslims are not peaceful people like us, they are the others. And second is, unfortunately, for a very, very, very large, um, you know, percentage or uh, a very, very small amount of people, a handful of people, you see that the the some of the leaders of Islam are brainwashing them to do certain deeds which have nothing to do with the teachings of the Holy Quran have nothing to do with the teachings of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam but unfortunately they do so with the promise of paradise or with the promise of uh, you know a greater blessings when they know in their hearts that it has nothing to do with Islam and they are just brainwashing people for their own benefits and so in this way there are a lot of negative elements in place and for me you know when I see uh, you know, uh, a lot of the most of the population here in Micronesia that have a negative um, perception about Islam. One of those things which I see is it's because of the negative effects of social media, mm-hmm. whereas they see a video which wrongly blames a Muslim for doing something, and you know, in their mind, uh, Islam becomes attributed with wrong or with violence or with other such things, and so. You know, one of the biggest ways that I know that we can contradict or we can change this perception uh, that people have about Islam is getting to know them and showing them what it truly means to be a Muslim. And so uh, the reason why I say this is there was a Pew Research poll done in, uh, in America a few years back, and they found that more than 62% of Americans had never actually met a Muslim in real life. Mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people, we can say that they look at their life, they look at Islam, and they look at it through the lens of social media. But there is one more angle, and that angle is that we see that the Prophet Muhammad had prophesied that there would come a time where there would be a lot of Muslims, but there would be few people who would be practicing the true faith. And at that time, the Prophet Muhammad said that even if the faith would go to the Pleiades, which was known as the furthest star away from earth at that time, uh, the, he said that uh, you know, there would be a man who we believe the promised Messiah, 
who would revive the teachings of Islam and bring about the true message of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And so, as you know, followers of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, we acknowledge ourselves to be following a Prophet of God, who is the the you know the uh, who started this community upon the original teachings of the Prophet of Islam, the original teachings of Islam, and the true message of the Holy Quran. And so, you know, it is part of our duty and what we do. Uh, to bring about a, you know, the true association of Islam and that true association is of love for all, hatred for none. Absolutely. Um, Jazakallah for this beautiful answer. Lastly, Imam Sajila, one thing um, I want to ask you before um, we uh, end our um, interview with you is in uh, regards to the um, topic of slavery. Now, on one side, it is us Muslims that believe that it was, in fact, the Prophet Muhammad that stood for the uh, abolition of slavery. Um, whereas recent history will tell you that it was uh, actually in the time of President Abraham Lincoln uh, in 1862 or 65, um, when uh, he basically got rid of the concept of slavery. Also, the fact that the Prophet himself uh, was a slave owner. So how do we um, explain that to our listeners? Jazakallah for the question. Um, you know, if we look at the after effects, um, of course what, uh, you know, uh, uh, President Abraham did uh, was a, an admirable act and, you know, it, it was very admirable for him to free people of slavery. But if we look at the after effects of what happened in the context that he did so, we see that people were left uh, without any societal help, without any societal uh, support, and it caused a lot of problems um, in society. And so if we look at a perfect example of how uh, slavery can be abolished, then we have to look at the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the teachings of Islam. There has been no religious ideology or no ideology in general that has been able to do what Islam has done in bringing about an end to slavery and bringing about equality amongst all human beings. You know, we look at the life of the Holy Prophet and he was revealed by God Almighty in Surah, Surah Balad, chapter 90, verse 13 to 14, that the Holy Prophet was told by God that, O Messenger, are you aware of a religious precept which may be likened to a great ascent upon a mountain by which a person is able to climb to the heights of divine nearness? If you are unaware, then we tell you then it is the freeing of a slave. And so the Prophet Muhammad encouraged and he instructed his companions that it was one of the greatest you know, blessing the, for a person to be able to free a slave. And not only that, but the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ brought in different safeguards by which the people who were previously in, in slavery were, you know, put forward and they were brought about as equals in society. Not only through, um, you know, just the virtue of a Muslim freeing a slave, but by other beings, like if you were not to... Uh, treat a slave by equal means. If you were to do something to hurt that slave, then you would have to free him or her. 
And the third is that if after all of this someone wasn't ready to free their slave, then Islam brought about a system by which the slave could say, look, I want to be freed. And in order for them to become equal parts in society, they would have to start either a skill or a business or any such career by which they would pay back a small amount of money so that they would become equal members of society and they would become productive members of society. Now, you know, we look at the the legacy of how, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, freed everyone of slavery. And, and we look at the example of Hazrat Bilal, radiallahu anhu, that once the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and we know Hazrat Bilal, radiallahu anhu, was a former slave who was disrespected by so many people. But the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he once you know, looked at the Hazrat Bilal radiallahu anhu and he said, Oh Bilal, why is it that in paradise I saw your footsteps in front of me? And Hazrat Bilal radiallahu anhu replied that I, I don't know except for the fact that I never leave myself except that I'm in a state of ablution and I, uh, you know, perform two rakat of nawafil every time I do the ablution. Now, when it comes to the the question of uh, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam having slaves. Yes, yeah, for example, before Islam, uh, when he got married to Hazrat Khadija radiallahu anhu, his wife, at that time she gifted him a slave by the name of Hazrat Zaid bin Haritha radiallahu anhu. Now we know with Hazrat Zaid that he was uh, formerly a uh, you know he was from a noble tribe, and when he was young, he was traveling with his mother when another tribe attacked and took him into slavery. Now, this same person, Hazrat Zaid radiallahu anhu, he was bought by a relative of Hazrat Khadija radiallahu anha, and he was uh, gifted to her. And when they got married, at that time, uh, she gifted Hazrat Zaid radiallahu anhu to the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Now, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam loved and cared for Hazrat Zaid radiallahu anhu with so much love that at one point uh, Hazrat Zaid's father found out that he was with the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam of course before prophethood and he said I will give you any single amount of money if you can free my son and you know send him back to me and Hazrat uh, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam he replies and he says that you don't have to pay me anything, you can take him. You don't have to pay me anything in, in, in response. And Hazrat Zaid radiallahu anhu, you can imagine how much, he, how much happiness he had in seeing his father and his uncle. But even then, he said that I love this man Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam so much that although you have found me after all these years, I can't leave him. And so at that time, the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam took him and and kind of adopted him. And he has a Zad radiallahu anhu, he became one of the first Muslims. Mm-hmm. And so we see that during the life of the Holy Prophet, wasallam, he freed more than sixty slaves himself. And the legacy that we see that when the Holy Prophet wasallam, encouraged people to free their slaves, you know, the companions like Hazrat Umar radiallahu anhu freed more than 20,000 slaves in one day. Mm-hmm. And so if we want to see a perfect example of how a, an, a religious system has 
eradicated the idea of slavery, we can find no other example as perfect as Islam. Absolutely. Um, Imam Sajil Dazakamullah, thank you very much for joining us. It was a true pleasure speaking with you. And I wish you a great and lovely day ahead. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Jazakumullah, Asnazah, for having me. Jazakallah uh, to both of you. God bless you both. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum So, as we were just speaking with the missionary um, Imam Sajil Ahmed, who's serving in Micronesia um, under the United States Jamaat. Um, and again, uh, our listeners are welcome to give us a call on 0208 And uh, you can also tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Moving on to our next guest, uh, who is actually in studio with us here today, which is uh, Imam Faiz Nasir, who is serving as a missionary in the MTA Africa Department, which is Muslim Television Ahmadiyya. Um, and he's looking after um, the television in African countries. He's, he's also toured many countries. He's been to the West and Eastern Africa, both has also recently, um, I believe, uh, integrated a studio in Tanzania, if I'm not wrong. Uh, so we have the pleasure of speaking with Imam Faiz Nasser today. How are you today? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. for having me and Jazakallah uh, for the introduction. Jazakallah for uh, taking out here. your time for us today. Um, so Imam Faiz is, at the moment, he is working on on a series on um, the life of the Prophet and, and the history of Islam, really. And we are going to be speaking with him about this. But what I can tell our listeners for sure is that I have seen the trailer, one of the best productions I have seen in a long time, and the first episode of which I believe is out already. Imam Faiz, just to give our listeners a little taste, uh, just to get into this topic, really, what significance does the Prophet ﷺ have for Muslims? Uh, uh, you know, like we all know, the Holy Prophet uh, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon him has has great significance and importance to all the Muslims uh, around the world. Uh, and, you know, we just spoke about Imam Shajil Sahib and he pretty much told us a whole lot of information why the Holy Prophet Sallam is is an important person in Islam. Uh, I mean, after all, he was a, a chosen messenger and prophet of Allah the Almighty. He was the last law-bearing prophet of Allah the Almighty. Um, he received divine revelation from Allah the Almighty, i.e. the Holy Quran. Um, and you know, at one point in his life, Allah the Almighty even told him that if it wasn't for you, O Muhammad, I wouldn't have created this whole universe. And similarly, the Holy Prophet was Rahmatul Alameen. In the Quran, we find Wama Arsalnaka illa Rahmatul Alameen that, um, you know, uh, O Muhammad, you are a mercy for mankind. Uh, and I've not, for example, he says that I have not sent you uh, but a mercy for mankind. So we can see that. As Muslims, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu has, as a prophet of Allah, as a, as a, you know, divine, divinely guided person of Allah, uh, as a, as a prophet of Islam, as the founder of Islam, uh, he has an immense significance uh, in our lives. But the real question here, or the real point here, which you know, which everyone should focus on, is: Are we just merely claiming that he is important to us? Are we just claiming that he's uh, you know, he's very significant to us or 
do we actually have that love and that passion uh, for the Holy Prophet in our lives? How much of what he has told us, you know, do we bring into our everyday life? And that's the real question that I wanted to discuss here because we have already established that the Holy Prophet is important to every Muslim in this world. But do we really love the Holy Prophet? That's that's the real question. Um, so, for example, um, and, I, and I know we were discussing this just a little while ago before we before I came on air, is that the Holy Prophet ﷺ is somebody who was actually who came 1400 years ago, yeah. And I asked Daniel Sahib if he if he knows the name of his great great grand grandfather, and he actually said no. Whereas I asked Salman, and he said yes. But my question to you both again is. Do you have any love for your great-great-grandfathers, knowing that they were your blood, knowing that you come from their progeny? Do you have any love or affection in your hearts for, or do you even know them? No, I, as I said, I don't know the name. Uh, but yes, the, because I am a progeny, there is, there is obviously a natural affinity. Yeah. But uh, no, I don't know them. You don't know them, and there, there is. I mean, I'm not going to say for yourself that you ha- you mm. don't have any love for them. Mm. Maybe you might have seen some sort of pictures or some sort of you know. You may have heard stories from your fathers or from your parents, but we can't really say that we truly love those people, mm-hmm. even though that they are our blood, they are our family, mm. they are our forefathers. So how I mean, can we claim? If, if if you, for example, say if um, I mean because I have experienced my grandfather, for example. Yeah. Now, if if I'm to compare that love to the love I have for my great great grandfather, no, there is no comparison at yeah. all. Definitely yeah. not. Yeah. So that that's exactly my point. That if somebody who had come fourteen hundred years ago, how can we just claim that we love that person? We've only mm. we've never seen a picture of the person. Mm. We've never we've never. Uh, you know, experienced him in person, mm-hmm. uh, let alone seeing a picture. So that's that's the question that I was trying to raise. And the next question would probably be: If we don't know that we love the Holy Prophet, how can we find out? How mm-hmm. how do we know that we really love him? And that's what every Muslim in this world needs to reflect on. Because mm-hmm. merely saying that oh, the Holy Prophet mm-hmm. is important is just not enough. Now, for example, if you uh, if you had like a, a cousin or an older brother who did really good work, you know, within your family or in the community and he had say, you know, God forbid, had passed away, you as as the younger person would have automatically tried to adopt his legacy. Hmm. You know, all the good work that he had done in the society, you would have automatically tried to follow that. Hmm. But we as Muslims, how the question is how much are we following the legacy that the Holy Prophet Sallallahu has left behind mm-hmm. or how much are we reminding each other of the good work of the good deeds that the Holy Prophet Sallallahu did in his life um, or what which his khulafa his caliphs continued after his demise mm-hmm. how much of that are we following every single day I mean it's just a uh, you know um, it's a far-fetched idea that to tell your neighbor okay, you know I'm going to walk past the house every day and when I walk past, just throw some garbage on me. But I will forgive you. I just mm. want to be. I just mm. want to follow the Holy Prophet Sallallahu's, uh, you know, practice. Mm. And so you do that every day. It's not gonna. It's not. It doesn't work like that. We're not saying that you should, you know, word by word practically follow the Holy Prophet Sallallahu. But what I'm trying to say is that if you are in a situation 
where your neighbor is being unjust to you. Mm. If you are in a situation where your neighbor is being rude to you or is not supporting you or is not helping you in the time of your need, then you put yourself in the situation of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and you give that one moment mm. and you ask yourself what would the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam had done in this situation? Mm. And you automatically will find the result because the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam like imam shajil just mentioned the 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 story or the incident of hazrat zaid bin haritha mm. you know he he even though his father had found him mm-hmm. but when his father found him he told him that you know i'm in love with the holy prophet mm-hmm. so i do not want to go away from this person anymore so you can go back on your own i am not coming with you mm-hmm. so if if we are not leaving that mark on the people on the society on the community on the on the people around us then are we really do we really love the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam so yes the significant part is there he is very important to us he's very dear to us but if we as individuals and we as muslims as a whole don't put that you know practicality into mm-hmm. our love then how can we you know does that love love that we claim that we have for the holy prophet really exist or is it just a claim mm-hmm. if it's just a claim then you know yeah. fair and square you've won yeah. right but if it's really love then that's something that we need to reflect on every single day and ask ourselves am i treating my wife the way i'm supposed to mm-hmm. am i speaking to my mom in the way the quran or the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam has guided me to do so Am I treating my children? What about their upbringing? Mm. You know, do I walk in the right way? Um, you know, when I eat, do I eat with my right hand or with my left hand? These are small, small things. But when you put them, or 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 prayers, for example, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has told us to pray before we start eating. Mm. And um, I don't know if you were at the Khudamishtama, mm. but Mia Sab, Mia Vakasimat Sab, he he had mentioned that after finishing every meal, Hazur loudly uh, says the the prayer. Um, and that that is a practical example for the children of Hazur as well mm. that they see Hazur do that every single day and it, it sort of becomes a practice for them it becomes a habit for them but uh, you know if we're just claiming claiming that the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is important that's not enough mm-hmm. and if we if we're just saying it without 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 within our speech it's not enough we have to practically practice his practices we have to put them into our day-to-day life and only then we can say yes that the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam that's something that really reminds me of of a concept that uh, there there is in, in 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 early sufism which is that you love one person so much that you become like them um as it is in 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 persian poetry it says mantushudam tu manchudi that i should become like you and you become like so uh, is eventually we become one person yeah. right so that is uh the 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 concept that that is being brought here that we should try to become like the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam as much as we can, we can yeah. moving on um imam faiz as i mentioned earlier great great um series um that is coming up a brand new show on MT International the golden age of islam why don't you tell us a little about that so um the golden age of islam is is like you mentioned a brand new series which is starting on the life and characteristics uh, of the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and um uh, also we are discussing the beautiful history of islam uh, in that program um you know from the very beginning Uh, it was actually a uh, a job or a duty which was assigned to us directly by his holiness as 
Amir al-Mu'minin, uh, you know, the fifth caliph of Islam, Ahmadiyyat, uh, you know, the board head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. And he had asked us to work on a project um, in regards to the history uh, of Islam and um, about something about you know the the life of the Holy Prophet in the English language. Mm. So you know this journey started uh, a while back, but um, generally uh, Hazur's been uh, involved in every step of the way. Whenever we had to make a decision, like uh, what do we name the program? Who's going to present the program? Who's going to be in the panel? Uh, where do we get our sources from? Mm. Hazur has been sort of part of that journey, th- th- you know, throughout throughout this uh, first season. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Um, and the name, for example, the story of the name of the program is the Golden Age of Islam. But if you look at it uh, from the Western, uh, in in the West, generally the Golden Age of Islam is usually referred to the time uh, when uh, Islamic scholars or Islamic scientists did um, uh, technological advancements mm-hmm. in, in the field of science. Right. Uh, we're talking about, you know, just before the 7th century, uh, the time of antiquity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's usually referred, um, that time, well, that period is usually referred as the Golden Age of Islam. So the point that we're trying to make is that we believe that the most pure and the most perfect and the gold period, the golden period of Islam was when the Holy Prophet Sallallahu himself was present. Mm. And that's the change that we want to bring to, to this phrase, mm-hmm. which is the golden age of Islam. And uh, that's why we're focusing on, uh, on the life and character of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam where we've started from pre-Islamic Arabia mm-hmm. and you may have seen in the first episode we start from pre-Islamic Arabia uh, what the Arabs were like before the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was even born um, you know because we want to we want to we want to also show the audience or the viewers what change the change that the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had brought within mm-hmm. the Arabian so- society um, and you know they always say vaguely that he had turned an- animals into humans yeah um, and that's uh, that's what we so basically the program is about the history of Islam and we've tried to um, make sure that uh, we try to uh, you know make it as interactive as possible so whoever's watching uh, generally when we you know talk about history or something in the past it becomes boring and people don't want to see it or people lose attention but we've tried to make it as interactive as possible so that when a viewer watches the program um, you know they enjoy it they learn something from it we tried to keep the language very simple mm. uh, to make sure that you know even children can take benefit from it um, yeah I mean, you know, um, uh, funnily enough, um, at the beginning of the, this show, Daniel was actually asking myself and also our first guest caller, Imam Sajil, to paint a picture about pre-Islamic Arabia. And I think that will, mm-hmm. for, for our listeners and, 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 and everyone out there, really be a, a, a great opportunity to see what Islam exactly, uh, pre-Arabia, uh, pre-Islamic Arabia actually was. 100%. Uh, you know, as uh, Imam Faiz is saying, uh, you, you know, that's where rubber meets road. That's, yeah. the, uh, you know, turning animals into humans. That That's what we're talking about. And, mm. and, and you know, they were living an animal life yeah. before his advent. Yeah. Um, and, and also not to forget when you talk about him being perfect, uh, the fact that he was born in that society and he was raised uh, within that society without having any guidance, without having any mentorship, without even having parents. Yeah. And yet he became the person that he was. Absolutely. And yet he was able to make those animals. Yeah, yeah. dramatic Absolutely. changes. Yeah. Ivan Faiz, now... 
if we speak about the life of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, there are books, there are volumes written on it, there are series, there are yeah. documentaries. I mean, there is so much out there. Yeah. What is sort of the difference uh, from all those from and what you are bringing to us in the golden age of Islam? I mean, look, we, we uh, like I mentioned before, Hazur Anbar has been, uh, you know, guiding us from, from the very beginning mm. of, of this program. And uh, like I mentioned, even with the name, Hazur was involved with who's going to present. Uh, Hazur was, you know, part of the. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's vague to say that, but Hazur was kind of part of the committee, right? Mm-hmm. He was like making everything that we were finding difficult. He was just giving us the solutions, the answers. Mm-hmm. Tell you what, only he could have thought of yeah. the, the golden age of Islam absolutely. because you're absolutely right. The golden age of Islam is is a very different period, as is normally referred to. But yeah. but you know, if you think about it, that is the golden age of Islam. Yeah. So, it, I mean, so nothing so else obvious. can be the golden age exactly. of Islam, yeah. and I think that's what the West has maybe tried to take away from hmm. the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam by so, giving yeah. the the time of antiquity that hmm. title. But in reality, like you just mentioned, the golden age of Islam is only the period where the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam himself was alive. Right. So, what we've done for this program is we have followed two books. Uh, one book is by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmud Ahmed radiallahu anhu, the second um, Khalif of uh, the Promised Messiah, uh, and the name of the book is Life of Muhammad. Mm-hmm. And then the second source that we followed is uh, by Hazrat Mirza Bashir Ahmed MA, um, and that is the life and character of the Seal of the Prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've uh, we've basically uh, sourced our information or history from these two. Uh, beautiful masterclass, you know, pieces mm-hmm. of art, um, and uh, Hazrat Muslimad uh, uh, has even mentioned, um, and which I came to know after Hazur had advised us or got, told us to follow these books. Mm-hmm. After that, I had found out that Hazrat Muslimad has actually said um, regarding uh, the seal of the prophets, and I quote that I believe. That out of all the biographies that have been written about the Holy Prophet wasallam, this book is the best from among them all. Mm. Right. So if this is the best book from among all the documentaries, mm. you know, volumes of books that have been written on this topic, if this is the best book, then I think, you know, without without a doubt, we should be that following that case. as a source. Yeah. So we follow that book as a source. And apart from that, like I mentioned before, we tried to bring in. Uh, a lot more graphics, uh, you know, things that that could be hand drawn. Uh, for example, in the later uh, one of the later episodes, you will see, for example, Ghare uh, Suhar, the cave of Suhar, mm. where the Holy Prophet Sallallahu and Hazrat Abu Bakr radiAllahu Anhu stayed for three days. Mm. Um, uh, one of our one of my uh, you know team members who who is uh, you know who is an expert in graphics, he's actually drawn out the whole cave, you know, from right from how what we thought it may look like and then he got the spider web and you know <laughs> the pigeon laying its eggs so, uh, so we've got a lot of graphics like we've done family trees uh, within the uh, studio we've done some interactive maps from what it looked like back in the day um, we got some new footage from Makkah and Medina uh, so these are you know some of the some of the changes that we tried to make in, in this program